Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with a very special guest. Uh, he is the author of an absolutely brilliant essay which appeared in this month's uh, The Monthly, uh, titled The Art of Class War. It's Lech Blaine. How are you, Lech? Mate, I am very well. I'm so happy to be speaking to you, Lech, because your essay, which you were kind enough to, to mention us, which was greatly appreciated by Andrew and I, but this was some phenomenal writing about obviously a subject anyone listening to this is deeply invested in. But yeah, just just to let you in, in on, on a little behind the scenes action, we've got a very tightly uh, scheduled off season, as in our Super League series off season calendar, where we've identified people that we wanted to talk about various subjects so it, w- it was very tightly coordinated but i read your essay and i was like i need to have this bloke on the podcast <laughs> so uh fantastic essay i've i've been shocked about how much on like it seems like it's really blown up what, what's your take on on the reaction to it yeah i, I, I was i was in uh, you, you always you always hope to get um a bit of feedback but but my my uh, worry was that it wouldn't get much traction either uh, because it, it's it's certainly not a essay for the traditional monthly readership, which is a, a, a f- um, fantastic magazine, but it's Victorian based, and so um, yeah, rugby league's not definitely not within their beat. It's a political magazine, and that's what I usually write about, which is politics. Uh, and so yeah, I was I was a bit I was a bit worried that it might just completely bomb um, and and both not not sort of tickle monthly subscribers but also not not get any traction from rugby league fans because they might they might not hear about it or they might not track it down but yeah it's been um I've I've just been blown away by um by the reaction from from both both sides uh, especially from um the rugby league community that's been the really awesome part is um is just sort of in the same way that the um the SA uh, shows the way that Rugby league is just the most versatile sport in the world in terms of uh, forgetting about grieve- like really deep grievances that happened only recently. And so, yeah, I've, I've had lots of people reaching out from completely opposite sides of, of the rugby league divides, the various divides within the NRL, uh, who were absolutely thrilled <laughs> about the article. So, uh, and, and, and who I thought might be quite um, offended about parts of it. So, yeah, that's that's always a good sign when you when you sort of have um, have, have people. Uh, of completely different views, thinking that you're sort of like um, taking their side on, on something. So um, yeah, uh, it's been it's been a real whirlwind the last couple of weeks in terms of um, yeah, just just hearing from the most random sort of people that I wasn't expecting to hear from. Yeah, so cool. And and yeah, I mean it's a esteemed journal, but not really. I, I wouldn't have expected it to have the reach to to us mungos that it has. But the the way I've seen it being shared on social media, and we've been contacted by many of our listeners saying, oh, did you know you mentioned in this monthly article? I, I think it's dispelling a, th- a few myths about rugby league fans. Yeah, I, and, I, and I guess that's why it has resonated is because uh, maybe maybe the, there is that there is that sense, like, and, and that's what the article's about, and there, and there is, like, that, that wasn't, that's not just me. Um, personally, being a rugby league fan, that I'm obsessed with that stuff. Like that's something that lots of rugby league fans have been thinking about, and that's something that I grew up um, aware of. And and um, and yeah, there was always it, it was always playful. A lot of the, a lot of the chat about mungos and rah rahs and so forth. But um, part of it was also deadly serious. And and yeah, I, I certainly um, have always had uh, a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that sort of stuff. And it was it, it was great to sort of 
take it away from from just the realm of my own personal emotions and, and actually find some from some serious sort of serious intellectual um, perspectives about it all and, and and so that it wasn't just a it wasn't just a, a piece from a, a rugby league fan it, it actually um, it, it it sort of took the, the point of view of lots of different people and, and tried to tried to weigh them all up against each other and, and see where it all sort of ended up uh, and yeah I think that um, I hope that 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 response um, means that there's more um, more articles because I I think that that's one thing about uh, even serious journalism about rugby league is that um, and, and I sort of had even my own inbuilt cultural cringe towards this you know my what predominant obsession of my childhood where there was a few times where I sort of thought oh I I need to I need to be um, I need to be more critical or uh, or I or I need to show more distance from the from the subject but i i don't think that that necessarily really happens with other sports i think other sports allow their writers to just fully immerse themselves within the subject and there's and there's not that sort of um there's not that sort of need to 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 pull back from the subject matter so yeah it was sort of great to just go all in and and um and really embrace uh the story of rugby league and and the characters of rugby league and i think you've touched on some of the themes of the essay in your response then but it's probably a good idea for us to to set it up so reading it back the Savo I couldn't work out whether it was an essay about class framed around Peter Volandis or a Peter Volandis profile framed around class so would you be able to just in your words kind of set up the article what your intentions were and and you know the key themes in your eyes yeah it it was and, and it sort of reads like that to some respects. Like it, there's a bit going on because I, I I just bit off a bit more than I could chew and and did a heap of interviews and went down a heap of rabbit holes and and ended up with this like behemoth first draft of like sixteen thousand words and I, I hadn't really decided at, at that point. There's there was there was sort of like three essays uh, and one was about. Volandis himself. One was about class, and one was about the Super League war. Um, and I didn't. And at that point, I didn't actually think that they could be brought together. Um, and I sort of went back to my editors and said, "Look, I, I like um, we're going to have to like pick." I thought that it was going to have to be Volandis and class, or Volandis and the Super League war. I didn't see that it just wasn't going to be possible to bring all those together. And they were um, my, my editor was great enough to to give me a lot of leeway with a with an essay that was originally only supposed to be five thousand words or so to to eventually. Uh, end up at nine thousand words, and um, yeah, there was a lot of cutting, and, and so it lost some of the nuance in in different areas. But I I think that um, from from the pre- fresh perspective of, of my editor, who's not a rugby league fan, uh, he, he really thought that um, that the Super League did need to be in there, and that it was relevant to the rest of the story. And that was my um, I, I I did think that it was relevant, but um, it was sort of good to hear that from someone. Fairly, fairly neutral. Who wasn't emotionally invested in it because I, I was obsessed with the Super League as a kid. So uh, it was easy for me to to find all that stuff super riveting. Because and I, I'd I'd only just um, like literally binge listened to the whole podcast after reading um, Mike Coleman's book when I was a teenager or whatever, and I, I lost track of it. But um, yeah, I was everything was just so fresh again, and I was like, oh, am I just like, is anyone really going to want to want to read this? But um, yeah, they were. Um, Nick, my editor, was was brilliant, and um, he he managed to bring it all together and and um, cut it down and get it into sh- a shape where it all sort of uh, hopefully cohered into a semi coherent narrative about about the history of rugby league in Australia. Yeah, you, you did such an amazing job. It's it's going to take some beating for uh, my yearly award of of the best thing I read in that year. You, you're you're in, in the in the driver's seat pole position. You, you're going to take <laughs> oh, some awesome, beating. Right? So. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't mind some weekly updates about that as well because I, I might need to. I mean, I might need to. I might need to go out there and just and just uh, f- find some other find some other rugby league story that can um, <laughs> that can get me second place as well. That'd be great. Now, in in doing my preparation for this interview, I realised that every question, every every segment, every topic I wanted to cover had something in common, even in terms of my introductory questions. So I'm going to revert back to my high school debating years and start with a definition. <laughs> so when we talk about class, can you put that into words as to what that means to you, uh, particularly in a rugby league context? Oh, it's 
it's a, it's a, that's like a that's something that can seem so simple is can actually be so hard to explain, uh, especially within a rugby league context because um, rugby league, and, and and that's I guess my fundamental fundamental understanding of of class in terms of the access to wealth, the access to amenities, the access to you know intergenerational connections through education um, in terms of health outcomes yeah all that all that sort of stuff and and um, that's that's where you have this this really strange beast which is rugby league which is a sport that uh, historically was or, or predominantly played by people from a working class background which just hasn't doesn't really happen um, in, in in other sports uh, there's certainly certainly other sports have have those really proud working class traditions as well, but there's there's usually there's usually a cross class um, association. So yeah, that's why growing up uh, for me and and I was my my parents were from really working class backgrounds and we weren't very well off when I was a young kid. But by the time that I was probably from it was all this sort of sort of the mining boom was happening in Queensland was taking off and and. Um, the pub that my parents owned was started to do quite well. I went from being, yeah, probably like a from working from from working class background to being comfortably middle class, and, and that's where it became really a really hard thing to articulate. Like I had this emotional association through rugby with rugby league as being this like class conscious sort of sport, but I, I wasn't really um, working class anymore. So it was like, what, like, what? Why does that? Why does that stuff matter anymore to me? Um, and it, it was because. Um, it was because I, I saw it reflected in so many other sections of society where, where where class didn't really get articulated, especially in Australia. But it did with sport because we you had this you had this sport which was a working class sport, and the way that people talked about it um, revealed the way that they thought about people from working class backgrounds. Um, and so st- you could say stuff about rugby league that you couldn't say about working class people. Um, and so. That's a long answer, but um, I, I was, yeah. As I said, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a really complex thing, and and the 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 point of the essay was never to say that rugby league is this working class nirvana, um, because that was one of the repeating themes within the essay was that rugby league has never had a problem um, in often, you know, farcical and really hilarious ways have, has never had a problem embracing capitalism like that's the whole point of it and it's never had a problem embracing people from upper class backgrounds like um it's it's um it's always struggled to to try and maintain as much sovereignty and, and power over its own destiny as possible but yeah it's never been a, 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 a even though it's come from a working class base, base it's never been about locking out people from other classes and i i think that that's where it might differ with rugby union in australia which i think um a, has created uh, sometimes inadvertently um, systems which have locked out working class people from from playing rugby union. It's something I've been thinking about a lot since rereading your essay, and also we've just released uh, an interview we did with Ben Darwin. Just thinking about those associations and that class isn't really about money. Like obviously, a big part of it is, but there's something. In a, in a tweet to us, you mentioned that your favourite character in season one of our Super League War was George Piggins. And, yeah. yeah. And, and to me, George Piggins is the perfect example of this. So, you know, grew up, you know, I'm not sure if he was working class or lower middle class, but, you know, worked on the wharves, came from that rough, you know, South Sydney background, did very well from, for himself in business you know, has a very comfortable life as a result of it, but he's still, he'll always be that wharfy from Redfern, you know, no matter how much money oh, absolutely. he has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I um, that, that, and that was the thing, um, within my family, like, even though, um, dad had, had done a right for himself in terms of moving from the working class into the middle class, at least according to his tax bracket, but, um, you know, he'd, he'd dropped out of school. Um, as a 13-year-old to work at the Meatworks and suffered, you know, a, a horrendous workplace injury there, which actually ended his footy career, and so that affected him massively. Um, and and yeah, the the even though he he ended up being able to provide a the the sort of educational opportunities that he never had to to his kids, 
it didn't it didn't mean that there weren't tangible you know tangible reminders that that he he had come from a different life than what his kids had uh and that um and that that sort of just come up all the time in terms of his interactions and because of the way that he he still dressed and spoke like a working class person he was a rugby league administrator who very much embraced the the rhetoric of class war uh he was a um uh, administrator within the labor party and yeah he um it, it it, the the class stuff never went away just because he um, he had a bit more money in his wallet um, or he drove a, a, a nicer car like he was still very aware and, and rugby league uh, like it, it that that wasn't just rhetoric either like he he sought to sort of um, he, he sought to sort of address that in really tangible ways through his work within rugby league but also as a foster care and also within politics so it wasn't just him uh, sort of shooting from the mouth he, um, he he sort of backed it up but yeah I I um. I, I was always definitely conscious of um, of where rugby league had come from and and um, and the and the and the sort of opportunities that it provided to people who who had less opportunities than what I did as a kid. Well, that's probably a good point to pivot to a bit of your background because when I looked at your website and your previous uh, essays for the monthly and and in other publications, I I thought that you were coming to rugby league as an outsider, but in fact, you are like very much an insider in terms of rugby league. Do you want to talk about a, a bit about that, about your rugby league background? Yeah, well, I, I just, I just grew up like I, from my earliest memories of, are all associated um, with rugby league. To be honest, like I, I had, um, uh, it's a it's a long story, not, not for this podcast, but I had, um, yeah, I had lots of older brothers who were all rugby league players. Uh, I had. A, extended family who were all rugby league players my uh first cousin was Elfie Langer so um I I didn't I was much younger than him so I didn't grow up around him or I was born in the same year that the Broncos won the 92 grand final Mm. and sort of went on a run so yeah like I I, he he was he was very much at a distance but he'd had this really close relationship with my dad when um, my dad was back in Ipswich and he was a he was a rugby league coach and and so that's I, I just grew up immersed in this um uh, in this world of like rugby league and country rugby league, I think like we were in Wondai at that point, and then we moved to Toowoomba. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I, I just, I just always, um, I just, I, I, f- I found a way talking about those those differences with my dad in terms of he was forty two when he had me and and came from a comp- completely different life. Um, rugby league really provided uh, him and me with with a vocabulary in terms of both emo- not just not just in terms of the the excitement of the game but also emotionally like it just gave us this ritual of this common interest um that would bring us together on a on a daily basis and um and yeah i i just i tragically um you know i, I had all these visions of of what i was going to do within rugby league and this is like when i was six or six or so and i was a mascot for my brother's uh, under fifteen team in Toowoomba that won a grand final, and I was like, I was my mum had been holding me, holding me back, and and saying, you know, you can play when you're seven, and so I had all these visions about what I was going to do as a rugby league player, and then it was like I'd just like I'd it was like a I don't know like a like a cat uh, who thought that he was a dog, and then suddenly got thrown into like a a pen with all these other dogs and realised that he was actually a cat. Like I, I just was <laughs> never I just never had any like. Um, the the physical nous or or um, or speed or, or toughness for for rugby league, which was like terrible. Like I, I played I played until I was thirteen and, and um, always had a go and, and stuff. But yeah, I I, I knew uh, because I was so obsessed with rugby league and I knew uh, a, a lot about it. I was I was I, I knew how that I that I wasn't going to play NRL from um, from a pretty young age, uh, which was yeah really. Uh, really tragic and um, meant that I had to sort of like feel around for, for other ways to sort of um, prove my uh, my love for the game and, and that ended up being through my um, my fandom and through my, uh, you know, just all those little things that you do as a kid in terms of memorising trivia and statistics and I'd had all, have all the almanacs and, and the, the books of uh, New South Wales Rugby League grand finals and I would memorise the, the winners and the scores and... And yeah, that that sort of became my way, um, I guess, to to compensate for uh, for the fact that I wasn't as good as my older brother Stephen, who was a who was a really crash hot player. 
You're painting a grim picture for all the hopes and dreams I'm pouring into my son, who's due to line up for the under sixes for Renown uh, next year. But we'll see how he goes. I still think he can crack it. Um, you mentioned earlier being obsessed with Super League. And, and for someone who presumably has no living memory of Super League, can you? where does that come from? And what? how did that obsession manifest? Maybe that was because because I did like my earliest. It's quite, it's very yeah uncanny timing. But my I think my earliest memories of, of being actually like understanding what was going on with rugby league was 1997. So I, I remember ha- having the very obvious connection with the Broncos because um, all my family were mad. Broncos fans and my dad was just like the most one-eyed Broncos fan in the world and we we're in country Queensland and it was sort of like the height of Beatlemania but with all of those various stars at the um, at the Broncos. Uh, but then there was this other competition as well uh, which was the ARL and I always had this very visceral attraction to the Rabbitohs which was partly I think just because I was the youngest and I sort of wanted to, to shit off my siblings and my dad because they were just like, why the hell would you go for the Rabbitohs? They were so rubbish at the time. But I had this really um, I had this really weird equal obsession with Daryl Trindle. From yeah, you're right. Uh, and, and, and I think that, that was also part of that whole thing where like I was like, oh, yeah, like um, like another nippy halfback from the other competition maybe. I don't know. But I just um, – yeah, I, 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 I loved him. I thought he was, I thought he was great. Uh, and then, yeah, it was just that that thing where then then there was one competition and like I'm registering this. I'm not registering this intellectually at all, but it's just sort of like weird and like interesting. And then the Broncos win '97 Super League. They win '98. South Sydney get kicked out at the end of '99, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, it's just like mayhem. And maybe that was like a good introduction to sort of like the mayhem of rugby league. Um, and then that's when I probably started to to form more of a understanding about what was going on as I sort of like you know nine ten eleven and yeah I I really missed the Super League war in terms of the the battle because that that was all more sort of like ninety five but I, I was always aware of the Super League like that was like just a that was like a thing and it, and it didn't sort of go completely over my head. Uh, and then by the time that I was old enough to do a bit of research, like I was just obsessed with it because I was like, what was this thing? Why did that, why, why the hell did that happen? And like, obviously South had been kicked out as well. So I was like, what, like, why the hell did that happen? Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really unique time to become a rugby league fan. And um, I, yeah, I, 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 I just wanted to sort of understand it all. It's the Queensland perspective of Super League is something that I'm really fascinated by because I think in one of our episodes where we were talking about Queensland, I mentioned that it was I could understand that for for people in Brisbane who would watch their competition effectively get rationalised in 1988 with the Broncos entering the New South Wales competition, Super League was just the next step in that process. So when you talk about tradition, well, whose tradition? It, it had already changed so much in Queensland. Mm. So I, I don't know if, if that's something you thought of or if it's something you're, you'd spoken about with your dad. Yeah, well, um, he, he, was, he was always going to be um, pro Super League because of his, his like, family allegiances and um, he was, yeah, like you, you, you saw that a lot during that period, even – people who were quite left-wing politically, like it just depended on who's, which way your team went. And and so, um, yeah, that, that was always – he was always sort of pro Super League and, and he'd been from Ipswich originally so he hadn't actually gone for – he hated the he hated Brisbane. Like Ipswich, they used to play Brisbane and, and Toowoomba in the Bulimba Cup and so he hated – he hated, had a like real chip on his shoulder about Brisbane and um, the, the A-grade the A competition there. So then when the Broncos came in, he was just all in on the Broncos um, and then when they went, they obviously had a massive part to play in Super League. He was all in on on that, and so that was never um, it wasn't even really a debate, I don't think. And I think there's probably a lot of people like that in in country Queensland who were just all in on on the Broncos at that time. Um, and so there wasn't really that that social friction that that happened in, in Sydney. So to a certain degree, I, I don't think it was just that I was young. I think that yeah, it just didn't really split. Um, the rugby league community in the same way because you just didn't have as many 
you didn't have as many Gold Coast or South Queensland fans. Um, and so it, it might have been more pronounced in, in Brisbane where there were more fans, but in somewhere like Toowoomba, like I, I think everyone was pretty much a Broncos fan. Mm. Uh, and, and then, yeah, I think that was the biggest thing in terms of when I did, like I, I wrote a letter to Mike Coleman because the book was out of print when I was like 12 or something and like begged him to, to send me that book. And I was just obsessed with it because like I, I'm not, <laughs> not even exaggerating. Like I would have spent like thousands of hours just like wargaming in my head, like what I would have done differently. <laughs> like if I had to rationalize uh, the competition at that point and being from Queensland again, like I was just so naive about like how, how brilliant of an idea it would have been to like, you know, I was just like, how good would have that been? Like to get Belmain, South Sydney and, and the Roosters all in this like in a super inner city team, like that would just be epic. And I would like come up with all the teams of, from the mergers. Mm. Like I had like the 17s of like for like 96, like if all the teams had have been like cut and amalgamated and you had like Parramatta Panthers and the Western Sydney Bulldogs and um, the Southeast Sydney Tigers, uh, the St. George Illawarra Sharks. And so I had all the, all the team, all the teams in the 17s plotted out. I had like all the coaches. Yeah. Everything was just going on. And I was just like, that would have been like epic. <laughs> and, uh, obviously like the, the essay to some respects goes into how like, uh, in some ways that was not like the most epic idea or at least to do it so quickly. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I I think that I yeah definitely as a kid I I, I sort of drank that Kool Aid and was like ah oh, that like Super League was the best idea ever, and then I I think that it was yeah probably partly like South Sydney getting kicked out made me aware that like that that there was like there was a really tragic part of it as as well and that it wasn't all just sort of going to be like awesome mergers and and super teams. There's so much to to get into there. Uh, I, I want to take it back a bit further because. What I find really interesting is how the Broncos, the the way they were set up, the the people involved, the Porky Morgans, etc., that were running the club at the time. I've, I've I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of class and how there's so many nuances. Because to me, like the the Gang of Four, as we'll call them, the four you know Broncos. Uh, owners in 1988 there's this real mm. smell of new money about them where the broncos were like set up as this money-making operation they had this brashness this arrogance they came down to enter the sydney comp and it was always going to be on their terms and so they were brushing mm. up against this old establishment in the arl but the arl themselves like they were, you know, coming from these traditional backgrounds as well, and it's so. Who is who is the the establishment? Who's, who's the establishment? <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. Like, and that all that stuff. The 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 way that the ARL was set up, like um, as I said, like there's, um, it certainly wasn't like a a close a, a close shop in terms of class. Like, um, you know, that that was like one of the most entertaining things about that time in rugby league is the way that these these guys like Quail and Arco were were you know rugby league people through and through and then they but they were especially Quail like formed like a really um a really sincere friendship with Kerry Packer like off the bat and that was before Kerry Packer had sort of taken over from his taken over um consolidated press so uh yeah, like it, 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 it was never, and the and the stories that you hear about that time in terms of like Sydney, um, it, it does seem to be a bit of like a uh, like in terms of Jack Gibson getting around, and and it, the the funny thing was that it seems like um, the the Gibsons of the world, like um, that was one of the really beautiful things is that they actually pulled rank over like the Packers and um, and yeah, like the like someone like Gibson was might have been one of the only people in Australia willing to sort of like turn down Kerry Packer and so, and tell him to fuck off mm. or whatever uh, when he was giving him advice about picking teams and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, there was, but it's just like a hodgepodge world of like um, new money and old money and, and, um, and then, yeah, genuinely players and officials who were still firmly within like a, a working class world, but then um, you had all these clubs 
which were also had a massive influx of money through poker machines. And yeah, it's, it's really not like a linear story in terms of, um, who, who was, who was the, who were the, who was uh, on the side of the working class and, and who wasn't. But like, um, I think that literally stealing money from the working class to fund the game supported by the working class. It, it's just so mm. crazy the way these things have intersected. Yeah. And it's like morally, like, I think a few people were like uh, that. I that I wasn't that I didn't have a harder run on rugby league about the poker machines, and I'm like I don't I don't, I don't sort of like need to like tell anyone that uh, rugby league has a morally dubious relationship with gambling. Um, that's sort of like pretty clear. But I guess the justification for from rugby league's point of view was well, if if we didn't get that influx of money, how do, how does how does the game survive um, without all of that old money? Um, and seeing at that time post-war where, um, you know, France is a while away, but like the, to see what happened with French rugby league and stuff like the, it was, it was really a survival at all costs mentality for rugby league. Uh, and that's how it got into what was definitely a moral slippery slope in terms of, um, in terms of poker machines. And uh, it's, it's one that the game, some clubs have, have have made pretty sincere attempts to try and disentangle themselves from that, and um, but but generally, yeah, there's still that really close relationship with um, with pokies, especially in New South Wales. And even beyond the pokies, when you look at the New South Wales Rugby League from incorporation in 1983, which you touch on this era in the essay, but basically from that point on, you have Ken Arthurson literally working out of an office paid for by Rothmans. You have the the <laughs> the development of the game through the eighties, culminating in popular culture at least, with with the Tina Turner campaign. There was an active attempt to move away from the working class in terms of who the game was marketed to and who they wanted to get at the games. So once we get to Super League, we have you know, Arthurson quailed the establishment already having a touch of the ivory tower about them in terms of the way they were perceived. And then suddenly that's just flipped on its head in an instant as soon as Murdoch and the other side of things come into the equation. Yeah, and, and, and it's a, the whole thing, um, just to go to circle it back around to the poker machine thing, uh, in terms of the Gang of Four and Porky Morgan and the Brisbane Broncos, is that um, poker machines hadn't been introduced to Queensland, if poker machines had been introduced, um, who knows how rugby league develops differently in Queensland? And I, I think that there would have definitely been a coming together in terms of a Brisbane team going into the New South Wales competition. But it meant that um, it left a, a team that was going to go into the New South Wales rugby league beholden to private capital because they didn't have poker machine money floating around in Brisbane. Uh, whereas, uh, like we just kept on seeing again and again both before Super League and, and throughout it, that those clubs who, and, and some of them were starting to, the, the clubs, the league's clubs themselves were starting to go broke, but they just had the ability to just hold on for dear life because it, they'd, they'd been set up to to survive at all costs and and um, and that's, that's what we sort of saw happen with clubs just refusing um, to die. But, yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that from like a, like the difference, but I think that yeah had a massive difference in terms of how the Broncos even get to that point. It's it's so funny that something that was without any doubt for for the greater public good is the thing that it, like things would have played out so differently if Queensland had introduced pokies. Mm. And 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 <laughs> and, it, and if we look now in 2020 with Queensland being the capital of rugby league around the world mm. like it, it kind of makes much more sense that we have you know four brisbane teams four sydney teams and, and the rest you know if, if those yeah well the, the 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 big the bit and like it's a completely different subject and you sort of touched on it in other podcasts in terms of the development of the broncos but the big missed opportunity was not having two strong brisbane teams from the get-go mm. um and, and and that you see how how um some of the other some of the other bids sort of left a, a lot to be desired in terms of um, their organisational skills. But if they had have been able to to get a team set up for the South Side, which was based out of QE two, 
um, ANZ and then a team based out of Suncorp, uh, I think you would have they might not have had the success that the Broncos had as quickly and it might have just allowed things to develop more organically and you would have had just such a strong uh, culture within um, Brisbane Rugby League. But, yeah, there was after the after um, the Broncos sort of got the jump and then with what happened, it just sort of left. Um, it didn't leave really much opportunity for um, salvaging that second team. Especially because you had the, the inside of the Ron McAuliffe-backed Jeans West bid going against the the successful bid that was as anti-QRL as they were anti-ARL or anything else, <laughs> anti-Lang Park, a- anti-all the rest of it. it. That would have been the most epic rivalry if, if we'd have... Oh, it would have been, yeah. If you had have had the Broncos, uh, like the that, that bid based out of like ANZ from the beginning and, and then you had the QRL bid... Um, based out of Lang Park and you had to brought like Mel back up to headline the other team and Wally at like um, at at Lang Park it just would have been it would have been brilliant and <laughs> the teams would have been so strong because that was the funny thing about Canberra even though they did so well throughout that period with so many Queensland players they never really had the the public support that um, would have been present for it was certainly present for the Broncos but would have been present for like a second yeah. Brisbane franchise yeah um, we're going all over the place because there's so many interesting <laughs> things I want to get to. Uh, so I don't, I don't have a neat segue here, but I, but I wanted to ask you about Quail in particular. So he is one of the most fascinating characters from this whole period. He's a dream interviewee for me, but I'm also quite terrified of him. Um, <laughs> what, what, what were your experiences with Quail and, and do you have any other insights, you know, maybe stuff that was left out of the final essay? Oh, it was, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was really, um, it was, it was a really great chat and he was, um, like it, it very nearly couldn't have happened. Like he, he, I I don't know why I just, I just tracked down his number and I just shot him a message and it was a long shot and I didn't hear back. And then, yeah, then I got a message back and he, he was, was sort of, wasn't committed and, but then just, yeah, I, I, um. I, saw, I think it's because I mentioned that I just moved to Bondi Junction um, onto Denison Street, and it turns out that he that like that's where he moved, just around there when he first moved to Sydney, yeah. and he knew the area so well. And I think it was just something something like that that might have like, uh, but yeah, he, he certainly didn't. It certainly wasn't like a no holds bar interview. Like he didn't really want to go into um, a lot of the Super League, so he he, he didn't in, in terms of the emotional stuff anyway. Um, he sort of told the story, but yeah, he he wasn't. He he certainly wasn't gonna have an axe to grind and put put a heap of stuff out uh, back out. It was sort of more just fascinating to to listen to him talking about his story from like arriving in Sydney as this country kid working at East Leagues Club and then just coming across all these different characters who would then shape the history of rugby league, starting with Jack Gibson and then yeah meeting Kerry Packer, who would take the runs down at Centennial Park meeting Arthur Beats and um, eventually meeting Nick Politis, who he's still really good friends with. And yeah, it was just, that, that was the start. That was the stuff that, that I was sort of like just engrossed in. Like it wasn't even really the super league stuff because like um, that, that story sort of being told, but I, I could definitely get that sense of the gravitas that, cause I, cause I, cause I missed, I certainly missed his reign as a, as a rugby league administrator, but I certainly got the sense of the gravitas that he would have had, uh, despite a lot of the clubs always rebelling against the ARL, the fact that he was still able to have some success just went back to how sincerely and how genuinely he just like loves rugby mm. league. Well, that's something that I think he, Arthurson, and on the other side, Rebo, that was my main takeaway from all the research I did. For any faults, any missteps, on both sides, there was a genuine love for the game that wasn't really repeated in, in too many other people during the war. Yeah. Like there were a lot of people yeah, who loved it's, their it's, clubs. It's, it's, but... just like, it's just like, it, it's just like, and like you've said it a million times on the show, but you're like, if you could have somehow corralled um, the impetus of someone like a Rebo with that old guard. Mm. Um, and it's not like, it's not completely impossible given the, the background that Rebo had. Um, but I mean, it's just like when you go back over it, it's just like a car car crash in slow motion. And you only realise, it only really doing all this, listening to the, to the podcast and then doing the research again 
maybe being a bit older and sort of like understanding politics and money and stuff. And you realize how, um, that, that, that none of that stuff was inevitable, like in terms of the, the Super League war happening the way that it did, like News Limited obviously came in with this gung ho approach, which was, and you sort of always think, oh yeah, the Super League was always going to happen from that point, but really it was a negotiating tactic mm. and they were sort of like looking for a way to, 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 um, get some of what they wanted, but they were probably never going to get everything. And obviously they had to come in all guns blazing. Like that's just the way that negotiations work. But there was there was still all those sliding door moments where you're like, if um, if Packer had have like just cut a deal with Murdoch sooner mm. and like if, if they had have never, if the the um, consortium that they had for pay TV had have never like disintegrated yeah. to begin with <laughs> and like all those, so all those moments like... Oh, there's so many and it's just like tragic because you're like they Quail I think would have been the perfect guy to to um if they if there had been more pragmatism from Packer especially, he would have been the perfect guy to to get a good deal for rugby league. Uh and there was you look at the deal that Packer ended up getting out of the Super League war, like like imagine if rugby league could have negotiated something like that. Like it wasn't that long ago that they tried to get a stake of channel ten, which like yeah. sounds fancy fanciful. Uh Given some of the financial wisdom of rugby league administrators, <laughs> but like there, there was that was like a that was like a real moment where like rugby league could have got some real assets, and that you imagine if you had have like got some decent assets in '95 with the the sort of economic boom that was about to happen in Australia, like um, yeah, it's making me it's making me feel extremely melancholy just yes. talking about it. Like, uh, uh, yeah, like we're one year into telling this story in, in terms of one year. Not you know late ninety four through ninety five, and there are already so many points in the story where one decision could have changed everything, and and made everything way better. But let's mm. let's square the circle. Let's go back to the essay. Why why was Super League included? Where do you see Super League fitting in to what you wanted to write about? I think Super League explained something about rugby league in terms of the response that rugby league put up, but it also just explained the the position of the NRL within the Australian sporting landscape, which wouldn't, which I think still would have made sense if I hadn't have gone with, gone through Super League. But what Volandis has achieved in terms of, uh, you know, love him or hate him, like uh, you've got to admit that he's he's unified people who, who hadn't, hadn't been able to come together for a long time. Um, and... And the the story of yeah the the way that that um, that the NRL has missed so many financial opportunities that the AFL did get and sort of um, to their credit you know took advantage of uh, it wasn't it wasn't all luck but yeah you you really can only understand that within that context because it was a very very in terms of sports broadcasting in Australia like that's a very unique moment for um, the AFL to have like got their shit together. Um, have an independent commission, and then the, the the money from from pay TV to start flowing into sport, um, and then and and rugby league, obviously because of what happened, just completely missed that opportunity, and and yeah, still in a lot of ways recovering from that. And and I feel we're we're fo- we finally seem to be in a good position at the moment, and a, a lot of that has to do with with some of the things that Volandis has done. Uh, but but just culturally, it seems rugby league is as relevant as it was pre Super League war. We've seen international football take off again, and and you know we're we're all enjoying that. And we're all celebrating th- these things as lovers of the game. And, mm, and there's that there's that less there's that less there's less cringe, and I think some of that might have to do as well with um, because that was the other thing that happened was that rugby union got a real like it was a, a bargaining chip in terms of um, it, it, got, it got a good deal out of out of Murdoch not being able to televise the league straight away and, and um, he sort of needed rugby union and they went professional and they sort of had this this golden era which contributed to a, a lot of people who, who maybe weren't fully rusted on rugby league people just drifting away from the game and, and, um, and, and not paying as much attention to it and they were people who have a lot of cultural capital and, and financial capital and and um, I think that the issues within rugby union, and it's just so 
noticeable even within my own social network in terms of people from rugby union backgrounds who just pay so much more attention to rugby league mm. um it's it's it i all these there's not just one thing all these things i think are related and i, I think that that's what to some extent that's why it needed just like holistic approach where i like retold the history of not just the super league but also rugby league um in australia and the civil war with rugby union and then yeah um where we are now which i mean who knows who knows what's going to happen but um at this such that's this period of historical nihilism. Like there's just so much optimism within rugby league, which is just bizarre that, that we're the sort of code that like um, seem to be, seem to be optimistic about everything at the moment. It really is amazing the, the way it's broken this way where I've in the midst of this pandemic and with everything up in the air, I've, I don't know if I've ever felt as confident and as, as optimistic about rugby league's future as I'm feeling right now. It's, it's. Yeah. And, and, and that's the point, like, uh, in terms of some of the, um, some of the class differences just with Philandes and McLaughlin, which were, were partly facetious, but also pointed towards that a lot of these rugby league clubs have been on, in survival mode ever, ever since they existed, but especially over the past, since the Super League war. And that is going to make, because there are going to be adjustments, um, but that's going to make the adjustments maybe a little easier for rugby league because they haven't, they they don't have um, rugby league clubs don't have quite as many overheads because they they just haven't had the opportunity to invest in the same way that AFL clubs have. But yeah, it's going to be it might just give and you'd, you'd much rather have the, the financial th- strength that those an infrastructure that the AFL has, but it, it might just give rugby league like a bit of agility in terms of once once clubs and players have to maybe make financial adjustments and you know i'm saying that extremely optimistically because we know what um what what what, what's happened uh throughout the history of rugby league when there's been fights over money Mm. so um yeah we'll 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 stay tuned yeah yeah, so i I don't want to be overly optimistic but i'm i'm very happy with how things are going right now just turning back to the Super League war, one of the really interesting things for me is how class was was weaponized in the PR campaign during Super League. From the ARL side, you know, I mentioned that the ARL had the perception of, of Ivory Tower. And and this was among Sydney fans who thought that, you know, Manly had been getting the rail ride for two decades and Arco and Quail were out of touch and and all the rest of it. To suddenly overnight that being flipped and they they were turned into the you know these working class heroes, you had Jeff Cousins, who was there as boss of, of Optus Vision to secure rugby league for Optus Vision, somehow being portrayed by people on the ARL side as this folk hero who was you know coming in to, <laughs> to rescue rugby league and from Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and. What I come down to is is the line in the Randy Newman song, Rednecks. He may be a fool, but he's our fool. Refer, you know, <laughs> re- referring to the, the character talking about someone from the South. And it seems that rugby league people were willing to accept the, the ARL side of it because it's like, well, I don't really like them, but this bloke is, is from the outside. I, I can't trust what's going on there. And I think that um, yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right. There was there was just that natural trust level, and the bullshit meter probably just went off for too many people uh, in terms of what Super League were offering, even if um, even if a lot of it was quite legitimate. Uh, but what the other thing was that Packer, for you know, in in terms of class, like as a as a bee's dick between um, Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch. Uh, if anything, like I like, I'm not like experts about either of them to any extent. But if anything, Packer probably came from um, came from more wealth and inherited more than Murdoch. And so, but the the slight difference with Packer was that for all of his various fingers in different pies within rugby league over quite a long period of time, he never actually tried to buy rugby league. Uh, and and he, he he tried to buy the Roosters, which was in the early eighties, which I found really interesting. And they um and they knocked him back, and he and he went to um and that's when he started pouring money into Manly. Um, but 
Yeah, he, he had these various attempts in those schemes where he like tried to bring mergers together and stuff. But he gen, generally seemed pretty content to to be a mover and a shaker and and like certainly be pulling strings without actually having that final like the ownership. Like there was just this really visceral thing with rugby league about ownership and like owning the game and I think that that is was just built into that that's where all that other historical stuff like rugby league always felt under threat and was just had this fight or flight mode and was just constantly fighting for its life um and so maybe yeah maybe it just wasn't as threatening because it was just as something as as like the like the fact that that Murdoch was talking about not just owning clubs but competitions and yeah it, it was it was just um, it was just too, too much too soon and and um, and because there was enough critical mass of clubs that were going to miss out it, it, it allowed that sort of groundswell of, of public support to sort of mobilize against super league in general yeah I, th- I think uh, you've hit on it there it's it's the idea of ownership but in reality like so much of that is semantics you know the the ARL weren't mm. you know owned by the the media overlords who were directing every single one of their moves and you know you know they were at the whims and rugby league in many ways remains at the whims of those media overlords to this day so it, it's a semantic issue the other thing i wanted to touch on was what you said about Kerry packer because yeah he's the very epitome of old money and the way the the packer and the murdoch families have intersected for the last century it's a really amazing part of australian history that i I think it's something that in you know 20 50 years whatever is is going to be really really studied in depth i think it's a really interesting Mm. history and 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 it's sort of been the the problem with super league and it's sort of been covered to some extent but it's never been uh romanticized in the same way as what uh world series cricket has or or some of their other skirmishes because rugby league was this two state sport mm. so like that's the 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 best the best stoush between packer and murdoch is hands down the super league war like that's what they should be making movies about but um i guess it's it's probably just a fear of of not appealing to enough people or maybe just <laughs> like the problem that of how would you tell the tell the whole story without um Without running into trouble yeah. with uh, with with News Limited, um, so that, that that might be the other issue. Mm. But yeah, it's it's hands down the most epic um, chapter of of the feud between the two families, which also included all of these various weird periods of like uh, mutual mutual agreements about various things. And yeah, it's bizarre. I go back to even uh, Murdoch buying the Telegraph off off um, Frank Packer in, in the early seventies, and and you think about the the way the Telegraph sits in terms of super the super league war and how news limited is perceived in australia today like it's it's um really remarkable but i I guess the other interesting thing is the fact that it was never just about packer and murdoch that was just the the way the story still gets told today when packer like really took such a, a minor stake in the whole thing like the fact that he could do a deal to get the free free to wear rights to super league shows you like that he his heart was never really in it and and i didn't even like that was one thing that i didn't remember because even though i'd like read coleman's book and and loved the whole story but i still gave way too much prominence to packer within my memory mm. yeah um I, I still thought of it as a war between packer and, and murdoch yeah because that that's uh, the main story the, that's that's what everyone yeah. wants to see but and, and 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 that's the tragic thing is that like packer just you even like Jeff Cousins like said like Packer had really no interest in fighting a, a, a battle against Rupert Murdoch and was sort of um, he was st- stuck in this position because he'd cut this deal with Optus who were just refusing to like budge at all because they didn't have a business model without rugby league and so but he was just like so reluctant about the about the whole thing uh, with obvi- like obviously pr- probably with pretty good reason in in hindsight but yeah that's where you sort of go like those those popular perceptions about Packer and the how he'd turn up to the ARL meetings and how he just how he sent um, Ken Cowley packing and that sort of thing, and then you realise that behind all that bluster, he was just like just didn't want like anything to do with like a, a battle with Murdoch mm. over the rights of rugby league, and, he, and like he didn't even believe in pay TV, like he thought that pay TV was going to be a flash in the yeah pay. yeah. Uh, let, let's look at the aftermath of, of Super League, and and one of the things your essay made me consider was 
this this was one of my favorite lines in in the whole essay was the Rabbitohs barrister Tom Hughes in court pleading the Rabbitohs case where he said this is a class of people your honor some people like opera these people like football and it made me think about how class and and you know this idea of people power and ownership of the game can sometimes be mobilized not necessarily in the game's best interests. So I've got mixed feelings mm. about the whole Rabbitohs saga, about whether ultimately I'm glad that Souths are in the competition today, but that's only because Russell Crowe bought them and turned them around and made them a force again. When they were kicked out, I, I thought it's sad, but they've been irrelevant basically my whole life. I thought we had too many Sydney teams then. I still think we do now. And so to me, it's the difference between the NRL and rugby league. And those two concepts get conflated so much Mm. that rugby league belongs to the people. Yes, but does the NRL? Yeah, that's that's where the, the way that the NRL was created in the circumstances that it was created led to so many of those problems because it just never had legitimacy with rugby league fans. Um, and, yeah, it's sort of you can argue about all the, those, those different teams and, 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 what, and what happened to them and the way that they were treated and there's always sort of arguments for and against. Um, and it, a lot of the time it depends on whether you've got personal affinities towards those teams. Um, but, yeah, that was a, the, the, the sort of shotgun marriage just meant that the the people who were running the game just never were never going to be able to and it would have been hard anyway like i you know as much as i like to sort of war game it in my imagination like i i don't think that i i think like the new south wales rugby league had such a huge problem kicking out like cronulla and west mm. in the 80s like so it, it was always going to be like a, a a shit fight but um yeah I, I think that it was just that that's where the the wider social stuff sort of fed in because it was wasn't just it was that sense that and that and that led to um, a lot of these working class people who had traditionally been associated with labour, and this is a completely different subject, but sort of related. And that's all around the same period that um, a lot of them switched and either started voting for John Howard and they were Howard's battlers, or they then ended up voting for Pauline Hanson. Mm. And so it was there was this period of like where working class people felt really under siege, and I I think. That 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 was like another really important thing, and and I still don't think that I fully like captured that because I just I couldn't spend enough time with it. But like that was a, a really unique period of time, and and um and yeah, work, working class people who had worked in the same job for their whole lives, a lot of these factories were closing, and they were losing their their employment, and then their sporting teams were getting um, knifed as well, and so it was just like a a really febrile environment and um and yeah you talk to some people like especially Roy Masters and and yeah he, he like talks about how like labor just completely rolled and like he's he was always pro ARL so like you, you sort of got to know where he's coming from but like that labor just completely rolled over on on Super League and that um that they that that sort of contributed to this sense from working class people that um, that Labor had just um, completely sold out because Bob Carr, who had no real interest in in rugby league, just just didn't want anything to do with it. And I don't think that like the Federal Labor Party wanted anything to do with it because they didn't want to get in between a fight between Packer and Murdoch, so they sort of just left it alone. Um, but yeah, within Sydney and New South Wales, especially, it was like there's a lot going on in that period, even beyond rugby league, that sort of contributed to the the reaction that we sort of saw and that that straining for like sense of belonging or that that the the things that these people valued were were vanishing and were under threat from from um corporations but one of the things i've been considering in the wake of reading your essay was how much the working class did drift from rugby league if at all like when i think about the rise of the swans with which corresponded with rugby league having a down period this, and, you know, rugby union at the same time rising and now falling way, way down. It seems that the AFL is taking the place of rugby union as the, the kind of Macquarie mm. Bank workers networking at the SCG on a, on a Friday night. You know, it seems like that's where yeah, you definitely. go. I, I'm not working class, but I've, I've certainly, you know, spent my 20s working in pubs, um, you, you know, in, in some very working class pubs. And 
rugby league, and this was in in the early two thousands when league was supposedly in the doldrums. Like in those circles, like Aussie rules just wasn't even an afterthought. It just wasn't didn't exist. It wasn't yeah. on the radar, and and rugby league was still everything. And and so I wonder how much of that drift was from the working class and how much was from, you know, the middle class and, and the upwardly mobile. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I definitely, I think it was from, from the middle class and the, the, it wasn't like I, I, um, the, even for the intro for the article about, um, Packer and, and Murdoch destroying the popular appeal of, of rugby of the game for the masses, I, I didn't actually write that, um, and I would have worded it slightly differently. Which is that they they didn't destroy the appeal of the game to the to the traditional heartlands of rugby league, um, or, or even so much. It was still a really popular game, and, and certainly State of Origin maintained its popularity, and and the ratings for rugby league were really good. It wasn't that it completely lost its relevance or its popularity. It was that it lost the ability to transfer that popularity into the sort of TV deals the game deserved and then the that those TV deals which would have given them the ability to, to invest into expansion and invest into juniors and invest into assets that could secure um, the game during a downturn like coronavirus. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think that – I think even though it was a, it was a bitter period and, and it would have been felt a lot more keenly in Sydney than – in my experiences, like um, yeah, I, I I don't think that there was ever really an, an, another game in town for um for the for the sort of like true believers of, of rugby league. And so turning to now, and you know, we've spoken about our optimism. Your essay in talking about Volandis talks about his, you know, he calls himself a migrant kid from Wollongong. Has has the racing background. He seems to have that rugby league grubbiness which is is essential to succeed in rugby league um mm. while also taking it to the top end of town and and you know he's shown that he's a man that's not going to be intimidated do you think he is the man that can like bring it all together like unite the working class background of rugby league with the the corporate support and the you know the stuff that Quayle and Arco were doing in the 80s and 90s, do you think the Landys can bring it all together? Well, it certainly seems like it. Like, um, and, and I think that that's where, that, that's where, like, all the stuff about class can seem quite superficial, especially to outsiders of the game, uh, because you, because it doesn't seem, you know, this, it's a, it's a sport with a $2 billion TV deal and, like, um, it's a long way away from its working class roots, but, there is something genuinely um, about where Volandis has come from that has genuinely allowed him to connect with rugby league fans and gain a level of trust that just didn't exist for his predecessors. And you look back at some of those appointments now, and yeah, like I, I understand that need to, to professionalise the sport, and I and I don't, you know, wholesale take on everything that Phil Gould says, but that's one thing that he always repeats, which is that the that rugby league that it's possible to find people to run rugby league who genuinely love rugby league. And, and that, you know, like uh, a lot of your podcast episodes would sort of suggest that you should, should be looking for anyone except for rugby league people. But I, I tend to, I tend to agree to him, agree with him. And I, I tend to agree with him, especially in the context of what happened with the super league war. Um, I think, uh, old mate from New Zealand, Moffat, David Moffat from New Zealand, who was a rugby union mm. fan, um, and then to go to Gallup, who was a cricket diehard and went to Canberra Grammar. And, like, you know, like, I don't want to sound too hung up about the whole school sort of thing, but it's just that those – it just contributes to all of the paranoia that, that rugby league fans had and the paranoia of administrators. And, and it just seems like um, even something as superficial as, as just that – uh, like playing and loving the game as a kid, like that's probably actually not that superficial. Like that's what pe- the su- supporters of a sport are really looking for, especially if you have a sport that's so that has so um, a high proportion of working class fans. And so I, I think that yeah, like Valandis has shown that he he can definitely generate hard power within New South Wales in terms of politics and in terms of the media because he's got so much sway from that he's brought across from race, racing and that he still holds. Um, and that's something that rugby league genuinely hasn't ha- d- didn't have with 
Beatty or Grant because none of those none of those power brokers in New South Wales has paid any like um, attention to them, no matter how good their intentions were uh, or how good their ideas were. They just got abs- absolutely lampooned, um, especially by the the telly. And um, and yeah, that, that's just not going to happen to Volandis. And you know, um, I um, I don't begrudge that either, or, or begrudge rugby league that because. You know, for a long time we haven't had that hard power, and so I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's someone there, even if he um, might not be 100% perfect. I'm glad that there's someone there who, who will really stick up for rugby league and, and has genuine power within the hallways of uh, the corridors of power within New South Wales. Uh, yeah, agree totally, and and you nailed it perfectly in your essay. So I'd encourage anyone who hasn't read it yet to track it down. The Art of War in this month's The Monthly. Uh, Lek, um, thank you so much for joining me. I, I know you've got all you know irrelevant politics to, to write about, but I hope you'll return to Rugby League over and over again because I think you've really announced yourself as a voice we want to hear more from with this essay. No, yeah, thank you so much for um, inviting me on and thanks for taking me on uh, an odyssey down memory lane during uh during coronavirus with the uh with the super league and and with just all of the obsessions of my childhood <laughs> wrapped up into uh rugby league and so yeah it's been um no it's been awesome to um to, to to do that story and and um to yeah speak to so many people who have who have similar obsessions and who um who who not only love rugby league but sort of yeah uh, love that historical analysis and and the uh, and the myth making and, and all of the romance that goes along with that and the and the humor obviously so uh, no it's been it's been incredible yeah uh, what can I say thanks so much like uh, the art of war check it out in this month's the monthly uh, and with that we will speak to you next time awesome thanks mate see you later deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.